So today is our last installment in our series, You're Not the Boss of Me, How to Say No to the Emotions that Compete for Control of Your Life. And as a quick recap over the last few weeks, we, we've seen that we all have emotions that compete for control of our moods and then, because of that, compete for control over our mouths. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about some of these emotions. We've talked about guilt. We've talked about envy. We've talked about anger. And we've talked about fear. And we discussed that when it comes with, to dealing with these emotions, we, we all do learn at one way or another, one way or another early in our lives, we learn to tamp down our emotions at least a little bit. Certainly enough so that we can function in polite society. And I've pointed out, and it's always fun for me to point out that, you know, you're all able to sit here in the building, mostly quietly, as I preach, as I go on, as I talk. And that's a good thing. We can all do that. So good work. But trying to keep those emotions from controlling our lives, well, that's a little bit more difficult than behaving ourselves for an hour in church. And Jesus pointed out to us that these emotions originate in our hearts, originate in the core of who we are. And they ultimately make their way out of us. They express themselves outside of us when we experience the various bumps and bruises and challenges that go along with living life as human beings in our world, going through this physical experience. And because of that, it's important for us to develop a habit where we monitor those hearts, where we keep an eye on what's going on inside of us. Because if we don't deal with the things that are going on inside of us, they don't go away. They just get stronger and stronger and stronger, and eventually they impact all of our relationships. Now, the emotions we've already talked about in this series are all fairly easy to spot. We all when we talked about them, everybody went, oh, yeah, of course, anger. I get that one. Oh, fear. Phew, that, yeah, got it. Yeah, but today we're going to look in a less obvious direction. And we're going to be talking about some destructive emotions that actually disguise themselves as virtues. The emotions that disguise themselves as, as good things are compassion and sympathy and caring and concern. Those are all good things, right? And in, in fact, love, wrongly applied, can look like a good thing but not be a good thing also. Because sometimes the things that we consider good and caring and loving are not so good and not so caring and not so loving. Many times, the thing that love requires of us can feel like anything but love. If you are a parent, you know what that means. How many people growing up, I don't think they say it anymore, I think the United States Chamber of Commerce outlawed it in 1987, but when you were growing up, if you're a little bit older, your parents said to you, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Remember that one? Now if you say, I'm hurting you, well, now you get in trouble and you can't do that. But if you're a good parent, you've done that. You've done that or you're going to do that for somebody that you love. You're going to apply something to their lives that they're not happy about. It's going to make them angry. It's going to make them say that they hate you. But you do it anyway because you're doing it out of love. It just doesn't feel like love. If you had good parents, it's happened to you. 
Your good parents have done something or said something that you did not like at the time, but then you realize later on, wow, I'm really glad they said that. I'm really glad that my parents love me enough to stop me from going out with so-and-so, from stop me from going to so-and-so, stop me from buying such-and-such. I mean, we really feel that. Now we appreciate whatever they did. They weren't just doing because they were mean or they hated us, but it was for us. But here's where this comes up for us as adults. Apprehension, hesitancy about conflict or, or just conflict itself can disguise itself as sensitivity, kindness, and concern when in reality there's simply discomfort, apprehension, and indifference. And here's what I mean. You ever have this thought? Oh, if I confront him about that, oh, if I confront her about that, it's going to be really awkward. My, my sons are young millennials, and that's one of their favorite words is, Dad, that's just awkward. I can't say that to them. That, uh, it's awkward. They don't ever want to feel awkward. I've spent most of my life feeling awkward. They don't ever want to feel awkward. It, it, it's when you go, eh, I don't know if I should really say that to them. Or, mm, I'm not sure I'm really ready to go there with them. That's signs of apprehension and discomfort and indifference. And the question is, do you want those things to be the boss of you? You really don't. And so if you're a Jesus follower, the challenge is in order to love other people, in order to be for other people, what Jesus actually calls us and commands us to be for other people, if in order to be that way, we have to recognize how discomfort, apprehension, and indifference are actually taking control over our lives. They're actually bossing us Around And we need to tell them we're just not going to stand for that anymore. We have to tell those emotions that we're going to do whatever we need to do for the sake of another person, even if it makes us feel yucky, even if it makes us feel nervous or weird. And before we talk about that, before we talk about how we're going to do it, I want to throw one more emotion onto the pile that masquerades as kindness care or sensitivity, and that's the emotion of indifference. Not my problem. You do you. Whatever, right? Indifference is possibly the least Christian of all the emotions. A difference is, indifference is sort of an inverse emotion. Indifference is the feeling that tells you you couldn't care less about a thing or a person. You, I don't care. It's interesting, you know, I meet a lot of people and talking about God all the time, and I meet a lot of agnostics, which are people, agnostic means you just don't know what God's all about, so you're not going to have an opinion. A means not, gnosis with a G, gnosis, gnosis means I don't know. That's what it is, I don't know. Or an atheist means there's no God. A means no, theos is God, no God. But what I've found is when people are truly atheists, they're indifferent, they don't hate God. They don't rail against God. They don't care one way or the other. You worship who you want. That's indifference. Couldn't care less. Indifference is a lack of feeling or a lack of emotion where there should be feeling or there should be emotion. It's a lack of concern when there should be concern. And indifference is insidious. It means it hides in there and impacts us even if we don't know it. It's difficult to identify. Because we always, almost never admit, as certainly as people who go to church 
We never admit that we're indifferent. We never admit that we don't care. We almost never, upon hearing about a brother or sister who's struggling, we almost never hear anyone respond in the church, eh, I don't care about them anyway. <laughs> Whatever. What we do instead is we act as if we're being really sensitive and just saying, well, I'm just not going to get involved. I saw that, but it's not my place to say anything. And then we just pretend as if we care, but in reality, eh, we'd rather not get involved. And we just say, when we want people to think highly of us, well, I'm not getting involved because it's not my business. But here's a question. Do you want indifference to be the boss of you? Do you want to be emotionally neutral all the time because it's none of my business or they didn't ask me? Do you want that to be the boss of you? Now, by the way, if you're a Jesus follower, you don't have that option. You don't have that option. You don't have the option to listen to those unhealthy voices because there's a voice that's already spoken into this issue. It's the voice of the good shepherd. And his instructions don't always feel good. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Let me pray real quick and then we'll jump in. Father God, thank you for this gathering. As we head into your word, we ask that you would use it to enlighten us, to bring us closer to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what we're going to do today. Today, uh, more than usual, if I was writing a paper or something like that, I would use it more frequently. But today we're going to use a well-employed, a well-worn method of presentation that was attributed, the invention of it was attributed to, to the Greek philosopher Aristotle, and it was popularized more recently by the American speaker and writer named Dale Carnegie. And the method is called the Aristotelian triptych. The Aristotelian triptych. Don't say you didn't learn anything today. This is the Aristotelian triptych as to how to make an argument or how to write a paper or how to do a speech. Tell the audience what you're going to say, then say it, and then tell them what you said. If I repeated that a thousand times to my kids when they were growing up and writing things, Dad, how do I write a paper? How do I write an essay? How do I write this? This is how you do it. This is the Aristotelian triptych. Tell the audience what you're going to say, say it, and tell them what you said. So, to that end, here is what I'm going to tell you today. And this is something that Jesus said. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. That's from Matthew 18, 15. Now, if that idea makes you uncomfortable, you are not alone. And if you're sitting here thinking, yeah, no thank you, I'm not going to do that. I will never be comfortable doing something like that. Not going to happen. I understand that completely. But I will ask you to hang on a minute as we unpack how and why Jesus commanded us to do this. I think you'll be persuaded. And as we look at Jesus' words, I want you to consider the question. If being uncomfortable is what it takes to show love to the people in your life, are you willing to do it? Are you willing to bear the discomfort to show your love to the people in your life? So now I want to set up the context for Jesus' directive, for the reason he told us to do this. Now in Matthew's gospel, Jesus set the stage for his ultimate conclusion that we just read that we, members of the body of Christ, are directed to confront our brothers or sisters who are in sin. And here's how the conversation started. So we go back to Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, Jesus came, or the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
Now, to see where this is going, it is important to know that the kingdom of heaven wasn't a heaven somewhere out there. When, when, when they said the kingdom of heaven, they were referring to the kingdom that Jesus was introducing on earth, a value system that stood in opposition to the kingdoms of the world. You know, when, when we talk about political things, and the reason that I don't like to get involved in them in church, is because political things bring us to kingdoms of the world things. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven. If you're a follower of Jesus, your citizenship is one of heaven. God is your sovereign, your citizenship is in heaven, and you serve here as an ambassador. You represent your kingdom, the kingdom of God, here on this earth, here in this country, as God's representative, okay? So with that in mind, let's read, read it like this. In the kingdom that you're establishing, who's the greatest? That's what the disciples were asking Jesus. Now, based upon all the things that they previously said, we imagine the disciples were hoping that Jesus was going to say something like this to them. They probably said, all right, who, who, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they were going to go, they were thinking, well, maybe he'll go Peter. Yeah, it's you, Peter, because you are the most passionate. And the disciples would go, yeah, hmm, probably, yeah I guess so, it's Peter. Or maybe they expected Jesus to go, I'm going to shock you here, it's you, Matthew, because you changed more radically than anyone else. You were a tax collector. Now you're a disciple of Matthew. You are the comeback player of the year. Like this is poof. You're it. But that's not what Jesus said. Here's what Jesus said. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. So picture this. All right. So they ask him, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, looks at the crowd. He goes, uh, you little boy, uh, uh, come on up here. You little girl, come on up here. There's a little boy. Now, I'm guessing when he did that, the disciples are like, uh, uh, boss, um, what does this child have to do with the question we just asked? I mean, we are adults. What does this child have to do with us? So Jesus said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that the disciples had some changes to make, but they didn't understand what he was talking about. Why should we be like children? We're men. So he definitely had their attention. So Jesus kept going. He said, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child. So what is Jesus doing here? So Jesus brings the child up as an example. And then he says, but if you take the lowly position of this child, so he's expanding the reach of his words beyond the child. He's not saying only children can. He's saying if you can be more childlike, he says this to everyone who just begun following him. Now we can know that Jesus meant this because of what he said a few verses later, and actually what he said before too. In verse 6 he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, and then look at this, one of these little ones, one of these little children, well, yes, but also those who believe in me. These little ones, these new believers, these fresh believers, these believers who have given their lives to Jesus, but they don't know much yet about why or theology. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, if anyone causes these new people, these innocents who believe in me to stumble, to, to fall down, to get tripped up, to get pushed off a course. In other words, if anyone who comes along and causes one of these people who are just beginning to believe in me 
just beginning to get their life together, just beginning to center their life around me, if anyone comes along and detracts them from that, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Yikes. Have any of us ever seen a millstone? Yeah, maybe you did. Maybe you went to Colonial Williamsburg and you saw where they were grinding the grain or whatever. But a millstone is a very big, heavy stone used in a mill to grind up grain, grind up wheat, grind up flour. So here Jesus is using a literary technique we call hyperbole. And he uses it to make an extreme point. Hyperbole is extreme. It's a thousand degrees outside. Hyperbole, you're making a point. It's really hot. So Jesus is using hyperbole to make an extreme point because he didn't want anybody to miss it. And to keep that theme going, Jesus followed with a word that whenever I hear it, my blood runs cold. You know what Jesus said next? Whoa. Whoa. Whenever I think of this word, I think of, I pity the fool. Whoa. I pity the fool who doesn't pay attention to this. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. In other words, there are going to be things in life that trip people up, but woe to the person who causes them. If you're the person who causes another to stumble, we're going to have a problem. Now, the applications of this admonition are many. Don't be anybody's regret. Don't trip up anyone's marriage. Don't trip up anybody's reputation. Don't be the one who trips up somebody's career or their advancement. Don't be the person about whom someone's going to say things were just fine until I met so-and-so. Everything was moving along just fine until I hired so-and-so. Don't be somebody else's regret. That's what that means. Jesus then asked about the things that might cause a person to stumble and the people who might cause a person to stumble. And then he moved on to how we ourselves can cause ourselves to stumble. In verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Jesus was speaking hyperbolically here. Okay, he was not telling anyone to literally, in the old-fashioned definition of literally, cut off and throw away their own body parts. Now, remember the words throw away, because we're going to come back to that in a second. And it is interesting, because centuries after Jesus said this, of course there was a group of people who called themselves Christians who did what? They took it literally, and they cut off their hands, and they cut off their feet in the name of Jesus. Not what he meant. He meant that if there's something you have control over with the potential to trip you up or with the potential to make you stumble, get rid of that thing. He goes on. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Please do not do this at home. This is hyperbole, okay? It means that there's anything in your life that has the potential to create regret to create a season in your life that you wish you could go back and relive and do it right. If there's anything that you have control over that could potentially trip you up, Jesus says, throw it away. 
get rid of it. Get it out of your life. I, I tell people this all the time when it comes to trying, you're trying to eat healthy. And so you decide, you wake up on a Monday and you go, you know, I've had it. My belt's too tight. My shorts don't fit anymore. That's it. I'm going to get healthy. And then you look in the pantry or you look in the fridge. And the Girl Scouts have just been selling the cookies. You got the Thin Mints in there. Hmm. What about the chips? You bought a big bag of chips at Costco. You got to finish that. Then there's all the frozen stuff that you got to eat. You can't throw it away. That's wasteful. So, you know, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Throw it away. Get rid of it. Now, the reason Jesus said all this and, and made it so extreme is because he's trying to show you how extreme God's love is for you. God loves you so much that God will do anything he needs to do to keep you from being tripped up. God will do anything he needs to do to keep you from stumbling or, or from falling away from your morality or your marriage or your financial stability or any other area of your life. And then Jesus continued, it's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now we get to hellfire and brimstone preaching. But I want to come back now to the words throw out because this is where that ties in. Here's what Jesus is saying. It's better for you to throw things out of your life than for your whole life to be thrown into disarray. It's better for you to take drastic measures while you still can before your life spins out of control. And the Greek word that is used here in the original text for hell is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna actually refers to a real place on the south side of Jerusalem. It has some history. Hundreds of years before Jesus, the Israelites actually sacrificed their own children to the pagan god Moloch, and God judged their nation. That's what was happening, if you remember. God's people were kind of going after false gods, worshiping false gods, worshiping pagan gods, and that's one of the things they did, is they sacrificed their own children to a pagan god. So from then on, that part of Jerusalem was known as a place that was cursed. It eventually became a garbage dump. And because it was a garbage dump, there was always garbage burning there. So this was a literal thing, and Jesus was using it to make an important point. It's better to throw some things away from your life than to have your life thrown into chaos. It's better to throw whatever you can away from you than to have your entire life thrown into chaos. Because when your entire life is thrown into chaos, it can become hell on earth. Right? Can you relate to that? Yeah. When things aren't going well, nothing's going well. Have you ever stumbled? You ever made a mistake? Have you ever really, really, really messed something up? Have you ever been in a situation where you stumbled and then something became an, a, an addiction or, or something became irreversible? Or something turned to the point where you wish you'd never got involved in it in the first place? And when that's happened to you, don't you wish you could go back to the beginning? You could go back in time and throw out whatever it was that made you go there? Throw out whatever it was that led you into that situation in the first place? Throwing it away would have been so much better than allowing it into your life and dealing with the chaos that it caused, wouldn't it? So because Jesus loves us so much, he's instructed us to take extreme measures to rid our lives of these influences. Every parent with us today should get this. Every parent. We would want the exact same thing for our children. So from there, Jesus takes a little turn. 
While he was still talking about his people stumbling, he got personal. And this is what he said to his followers. Look at this. What do you think? He asked them what they think. That happens all the time. God says to me, Russell, what do you think? No, man. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? What do you think? But then Jesus follows up with a familiar parable, but with a twist. Remember, a parable is a made-up story that teaches a real lesson. And it's important to know this. Jesus taught for about three years on earth. And during that time, he repeated himself a bit. He repeated many parables. He repeated many stories to make sure that each of the neighborhoods and groups of people that he went to got the same message. He made sure that the people of Judea and Galilee that he saw as he was traveling around heard and understood him. It's not like there was mass media and you know, there'd be a YouTube clip of what Jesus said on Tuesday and then it went viral and everybody saw it. That's not how that worked, right? So Jesus took a parable that the people had heard before in one context and he repackages it here in a different context. So here's what he says. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, So to highlight what Jesus is about to do with this parable here, let's read it this way. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them stumbles away, or one of them gets lost, if one of them loses its way, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? In other words, wouldn't you expect the man to leave the 99 that were doing no thing, they're just safely grazing on the hills, wouldn't you expect him to go, okay, you guys are cool here, I'm going to go find the one that wandered off. To which the audience was likely nodding and saying, well, yeah, we know how this works. Of course, that's what you do. And when you think about it, you've actually experienced this feeling too. Have you ever misplaced something? Anybody ever misplaced anything? They've invented those Apple ID tags because people misplace everything. Let's say you misplaced your wallet. So what do you start doing? You start going through your mind. All right, where was I today? Where could I have? Did I leave it at Publix? Did it fall out of my bag at the gym? Uh, You're rewinding in your mind all the places you could have lost it. And then you begin dreading all the things that are going to happen because it's lost. Oh, goodness. I got to go look. Has someone charged on my credit card? Now I got to cancel all the credit cards. I got to get a new license. How do you do that? Oh, no. What else was I carrying in my wallet? Oh, how many credit cards do I have? Oh, no. Now I got to go get another this, another that. I can't remember what I had in there. Even if, even if you had other credit cards in the drawer at home, oh, don't worry, you got other credit cards at home that you don't ever use. It's not any comfort at all. You want to find the wallet that you lost. All you can think of is what you lost. The lost thing merits all your attention. And then when you find your wallet later, under the seat of your car, in the crack between the middle and the seat, in your gym bag, in your purse, how do you feel? You, you feel, whew! Oh, and everybody says the same thing. It was in the last place I looked. I always look in one more place because I hate that expression. It was in the second to last place I looked. But you go, oh, and the tension just leaves you. And if you've been looking for three days, you carry the tension around for a few more hours. I got to find the wallet. All right, I found the wallet. Yeah, but it's still there for a while. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he said this. And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that didn't wander off. You lose something of value and you find that thing, that's where your emotions are focused. And similarly, stay with me here. When something in your life has caused you to stumble away from God, has caused you to fall away from the things in your life that add happiness and value, 
When you've gotten away from God and living for God and you find yourself feeling alone and afraid and out of control and in danger, when you find yourself friendless, brainless, helpless, and hopeless, when you come back to God, when you come back into fellowship with other Jesus followers, when you were lost but now you're found, at that moment, your heavenly Father is more excited about you than he is about his other sheep. That's how much God loves you. Jesus said it this way. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. In the same way, your heavenly Father is not willing that any of these little ones should perish, should stumble, should be lost to him. Now, Jesus could have stopped the message here. And if he had, we'd go, okay, got it. Here's the message. God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to stumble, and we should be on the lookout for anything or anyone that'll cause us to stumble, plus we should not cause anyone else to stumble. Got it. And if there's anything in our lives that's going to do that, we can get rid of it now. We can throw it away now so I don't stumble, so my life isn't thrown into chaos. I need to throw that away. Got it. And now I know that if I stumble away from God, he'll come looking for me because I'm like that lost sheep. Wow, what a great message. Isn't God awesome that he loves me so much? And if that were all there is to the lesson, we could wrap up right now, pray and get to breakfast or get to brunch or get to lunch early. But Jesus didn't stop there because Jesus wasn't quite done yet. Because you see, Jesus doesn't just do for us. Jesus has called us into a relationship with him, and because of that relationship, there are things that Jesus wants from us too. Jesus has called us to be a part of the project, to be a part of the process of reconciling God's people to himself. So because of that, Jesus kept going. And here's what he said in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. When you see someone you know about, when you see someone you care about, when you see someone you love stumble, fall, get tripped up, if your brother or sister sins, if they wander off, if they get tripped up, go to them and point out their fault. But our instinct when we hear this, is to respond by saying or thinking, eh, no, not going to happen. I'll pray for them. I'll pray for God's supernatural intervention in their lives, that they get back on the path to him in Jesus' name, amen, and now I'm done. That's all I have to do. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, go. Jesus wants us to go to them and point out their fault. Now, under normal circumstances, this isn't easy to do. But in today's disconnected, hypersensitive world, in a world where we're so worried about offending somebody else or triggering somebody else, going to a friend and speaking truth into their lives, by the way, we're not even supposed to know what truth is anymore, but nowadays people see going to somebody and doing that as a bridge too far. Because going is awkward. Going is uncomfortable. We want, to be in, we want to be sensitive and not intrusive. We want to give people their privacy. We want to give people their space. You do you. What's your truth? But what Jesus is telling us is to be downright rude. Jesus wasn't having it. 
Jesus is, you're not being sensitive by not going to them. You're being insensitive. You're showing you don't care about them. You're being indifferent to them. I want you to go to them whether you feel like going to them or not. And if you follow my command, you're not going to be rude because I want you to go and point out their fault, he continues, just between the two of you. Just the two of you. No one else is going to know about it. It's just the two of you. Don't share a prayer request slash gossip request about them with your Christian friends. Let's all pray for Jimmy. You know he's having a hard time with his uh, problem with matchbox cars. He spends all the money on them. Don't gossip about them, you other Christian friends. Just go to them and keep everything between the two of you. And to our objection, that's none of my business. Jesus wants you to know, because they belong to him, and we belong to him, And because he loves us all, he's sending us. That's the most loving thing we can do for a brother or sister who's in sin is go to them. So Jesus continues, when you see your brother and sister in sin, you go to them just between the two of you, and if they listen to you, you've won them over. Yay. Look, if you go to them and they listen to you, you've won them over. You've rescued them, Jesus says. You've returned them to me. When they look back on this period of their lives, They'll know how much you love them and how much you valued them because you were bold enough to push through all of that awkwardness and speak into their life. And at this point, we're inclined to say, "Hmm, okay, Jesus, I see your point. But that's it, right? You You don't expect me to do more than just go to them, right? And Jesus said, nope, because things don't work out that way. Not usually. Every so often, sure, when you point out someone's sin, They immediately see what you're talking about, and they go, wow, you know, you're right. Thanks for making me see the light. Because you guys have all said that to people when people are pointing stuff out to you constantly, right? Every time someone points out something you're doing sinful, you go, oh, wow, thank you for convicting me. You got me. You're right. I'm wrong. Because we always do that, right? No, that's the exception. Most of the time, people aren't going to listen to you. But we go, well, but we're done, right? Like, that's, that's the end of what I have to do because it's not up to, to me, right? God, it's up to you, big man, huh? You're going to give me an A for effort because I pushed through my awkwardness and my discomfort and I did what you did. Like, you're going to give me credit for that, right? And Jesus says, eh, no. Because he kept going. Well, if they won't listen, you got to go back. Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus said, no, nah, that's not the end of it because if they won't listen, you got to go back and you got to bring witnesses so you can establish a solid case so that the offender has no way of talking his or her way out of it. Does that sound a lot like a court of law? It does, doesn't it? And we're not lawyers, well, most of us. We're not trying to get a conviction. So who actually does this? Who does this? You know who does this? Good shepherds do this. And your heavenly father does this. God seriously loves them, and he wants you to love them just as seriously. And their behavior has warranted this next step, so you need to be bold and take it. And you go, oh, all right, fine. But after I do that, I'm out, right, God? That's it, that's all I have to do, bring two people back, I'm done, no more? What do you think Jesus said? No, you're not done yet. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. By the way, the Greek word used here is the word ekklesia, the one that's over our door. That means assembly. That means congregation. That means community of believers. So we don't take it to the church. I stand up on a stage in front of people on a Sunday and I'll say, 
Jimmy over there, you know what he's been doing? He doesn't recycle. Do I do that? No, that's not. You take it to the community of believers. See who they're talking to? These are small communities. These weren't big churches. They were communities where people knew each other. They knew their lives. They raised their kids together. The community was the hub of their lives. And if somebody in that tightly knit community stumbled, it had the potential to impact everybody connected. So Jesus is saying, listen, if a person continues to ruin their life and their behavior could potentially ruin other people's lives, you need to take the people in front of their community, the community that knows them and cares about them, and then you need to confront them as a community. And then the people who love them and care for them can restore them. So in our context, community would really mean your small group or the people you're most closely connected to. That's why it's so important to be a part of a small group. Now, I've had to do this a few times. It's very powerful to do it. And it's very moving when you come alongside of somebody who's struggling and you say to them, this is not acceptable. You need to stop and if you'll agree to do so, I'll be here for you, and I'll get you through it. But it doesn't work all the time, which is why Jesus said this. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, this passage has been wildly misinterpreted over the years. I've known people who've gone through this process and used this passage. I've been a part of this process with people who would interpret that to mean if the person still doesn't get it, they're to be shunned by the community. And I've seen people shun other people, and it has destroyed marriages and families and churches. But Jesus did not tell anybody to shun anyone. Look at the words. What Jesus was saying is that when you confront somebody because there's something going on in their life that's causing them to hurt themselves, you're making an assumption about them. And the assumption you're making is that they see the world the way that you see the world. They are professing believers the way you're professing believers. They think the world works the way you think the world works. But that's not always the case. So Jesus says... When it finally occurs to you, you don't see things eye to eye. You're not looking at the same worldview. You're not on the same page. You don't share the same values. You've got to approach them differently. In that case, you would approach them as someone who doesn't share your worldview, as someone who doesn't believe, as someone who doesn't share your values. You need to back off that part of it and treat them as somebody who's just getting into this, a pagan, a tax collector, someone who doesn't know God at all. When that happens, even though you assume going in that it was your business because you thought you were on the same page regarding your faith, once you realize you're not on the same page, you no longer have any responsibility to try to help them back to God because they were obviously not with God in the first place. Once you've gone through the process and they still refuse to listen to your spiritual counsel, it becomes clear that they're indifferent, that they don't care, that they don't view the the world, the way you and the rest of the Jesus community are part of view the world. So you need to begin to treat them like somebody who has a different worldview. So do you still love them? Of course you do. But you treat them differently. You love them differently. Any questions? The whole thing's rough. It's very rough. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It's aggressive. And it's basically terrible. It is hard to do this. So why does Jesus require it of us? It's because he loves us. So now we go back to the beginning. Tell them what you're going to say. Say it. Tell them what you said. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. And do this whether you feel like it or not. As I said, I've done this many times. 
And I was only able to do it because I made a decision at the beginning that if it ruins this relationship, so be it. I decided I'd rather risk a friendship than remain silent. I'd rather not remain silent when love requires me to speak up because love is not silent when there's something that needs to be said. Discomfort is silent. Apprehension is silent. Indifference is silent. Love can't be silent. Now you need to know that this doesn't work well often. It's rare. I've lost some dear friends as a result of doing this over the years. But every so often it works. And when it does, it is fantastic. And people are thankful. And when they've gotten their lives back with God, they just remember that moment. It's a turning point for them. But that is the exception, not the rule. But I can tell you I've never regretted being obedient to Jesus and doing it when the need arises. Now, I know I am more confrontational than most people. I hope I am for your sake. Anyway, most of you are not anywhere near as confrontational as I can be. It's easier for me. I get that. But it's so important. It's a good idea to heed Jesus' counsel on this one. Love is not silent. Love does not permit us to remain silent. Love does not permit us to mind our own business. When we notice somebody we love who needs to mind their business, discomfort, apprehension, indifference, those are things that are silent. Please don't let those things boss you around. Remember, Jesus declared woe to those who caused someone to stumble. So let us stand up for Jesus and declare, hey, discomfort, apprehension, and indifference, you're not the boss of me. Don't raise your hand, but do you have somebody in mind right now? that you're thinking you need to go to and call out their sin? You probably do. Well, if you do, don't let your emotions keep you from doing what you now know you need to do. Somebody's future may depend on it. So you don't do this because you know it's going to work. As I just told you, it doesn't work all the time. But you do it because Jesus commanded you to do it. Right before Jesus was arrested, here's what he said to his disciples. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that's what this is. Doing for others what God through Christ has done for us is just one more way to love the way that we've been loved. Because remember, God didn't do the comfortable thing. He went out on a limb for you. God sent his son into the world to die for your sins, knowing that some people would not receive the gift. God sent his son into the world to pay for your sins and he announced his forgiveness ahead of time even though he knew many wouldn't respond. But then he went to the cross for us out of his love for us. And his call in our lives is to do that for others, to do what he's done for us. When I was lost, God chased me down and showed me my sin. And he showed it through someone who did not let discomfort, apprehension, or indifference be the boss of him. And I'm eternally grateful for it. So who needs to hear from you? It is your business because you love them. And love is not silent. Love speaks up. Let the love of God be the boss of you. And you'll never regret it. And you have no idea the difference it might make in somebody else's life. Amen? Let me pray. God, thank you for this message for these words. They're tough. They're awkward. They're uncomfortable. 
but we know, God, that you're teaching us how to love. And it's through your love that you will draw people to yourself. So, God, as we head out from here today, as we consider all the things we've learned over the last few weeks, help us to be the best ambassadors for you that we can, to lead a community of lost people to your saving grace, and to stand as lights for those who live in the dark. We thank you, God. We love you. We praise you. We give you this in Jesus' name. Amen.